It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Stan Dryav, Nick Braccia coming at you. We're going to break down the card from a week and a half ago where Thompson faced off with Neil in the main event. It was a pretty stacked card overall, although I would argue somewhat disappointing in some ways. And we're also going to get into the Geekies, Nick, which is uh, our very own award show, our year-end awards. We tried to keep it like a little bit different. Some of them, uh, some of those awards are pretty standard, like Fighter of the Year. Some of them are pretty wacky, which we think uh, is the only way to really do this, since I'm sure many of you have listened to an award show or two uh, in the MMA space in the recent past. So we're going to try to mix it up for you guys. Nikolai, good to be on with you, brother. What's up? Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, Stanislav. And congratulations, because the season, uh, our season of picking is over. And you won what turned out to be a closely contested victory. I made you sweat in the whole uh, second half of the year. Got within two. Got within two fights. Um, what's the fi- the final? The final tally was something like one seventeen, one thirteen, or something right around there. And Nikolai, you did have me sweat and eight or seventeen, fifteen, and eight. I lost by maybe three, but. I thought I was going to, you know, there was one card towards the end where I took a lot of risks and it fell. And we ended on a tie, which is, you know, fine, fine by me. I think we both, uh, I think we both tightened up our game. I liked this new draft approach that we took. And hopefully for our listeners, we provided some, some cogent analysis, some hot takes. And I think we'll get even better in the new year. I think um, so too. Nick. Also, frankly, it gave like having UFC. There's a lot of things I have to say about Dana White in the organization, and I've got very mixed feelings. But I am grateful that for the most part, during this horrible pandemic, every Saturday night, I knew that there were fights to look forward to. I could think about them during the week. It was it was something to do and talk to you and other friends about. It it really did provide. Um, some stability during this horrible time. I am grateful for the fighters that made sacrifices and wanted to do this. But what I don't know about is positions of pressure that may or may not have been put on certain people. The fact that certain guys were definitely down with fighting and traveling and training during this and thus got three, four, five fights during this pandemic and other people who we haven't seen in a year. So it's, there's a big story to unpack there. The short version is, personally, selfishly, I'm really glad to have had and grateful to have had this anchor. Yeah, uh, same here. And, and you know, you are patting Dana White on the back, and Dana White's been patting himself well, on the back over well, the Well, I'm not time. patting him on the back. I think it's very complicated. And I think his posturing around it is pretty disgusting. 100%. But that doesn't, But that doesn't change, like... My very like my feelings about who Dana White is as a person based on what I know and the and the role the sport plays in my life are um, those are those are things that are in conflict. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely hear you there. Not only that, the CTE that a lot of these fighters are getting, you know, we love this sport so much and and to kind of 
knowing that this entertainment is brought with a serious price that's paid by these athletes. And most of these athletes don't end up retiring with a whole bunch of money in their account. So even Joe Rogan's spoken about the fact that, you know, he's thinking twice before signing his next UFC contract because he realizes the damage that all these fighters take, even though he's so passionate about the sport in his own ways. Uh, but Nick, we're actually going to get into last week's UFC Fight Night, Thompson versus Neil, and we're also going to get into the MMA Awards after. Speaking of CTE, Nick, a couple of guys walked away with some serious brain damage after this one. Um, obviously, we can get into Stephen Thompson and, and Joff Neil first. Thompson controlled the entire thing. You and I disagreed on the pick in this one. I, I expected that Joff Neal would be able to catch Thompson at some point, given his speed advantage. Um, and it didn't really show much in this bout. And Thompson, uh, I think, showed that he can have a mastery when it comes to just purely the striking realm like very few others can. His two losses that predominantly took place striking were against uh, Anthony Pettis. Uh, well, I should, I should say I guess three losses, Darren Till as well, but Darren Till, that fight should have gone his way. And, and Tarn Woodley, right? Pettis and Woodley were the two guys that stayed standing with him the majority of the time and were able to tag him on the counter because they're such kind of backpedaling fighters. They're, they're fighters that are going to allow Thompson to push them up against the fence which is not usually the case, and counter from there. Tyron Woodley was able to counter with a big right hand, and so, with the, well, so was Anthony Pettis. Joff Neal didn't do that. He was aggressive like all of the other guys that have lost to Thompson in the past, whether we're talking about Vincente Luque, Jorge Masvidal, uh, Johnny Hendricks, Jake Ellenberger, Patrick Ote, Robert Whitaker. All of these guys were trying to get at Stephen Thompson because they were frustrated from standing on the outside and getting picked apart. And... Joff Neal couldn't help but move forward, couldn't help but push at Thompson and kind of gave him the opportunities that he needed to counter him effectively. I do think uh, part of the issue here is that Joff Neal literally lost his entire corner. His head coach, Saif Saoud, stayed in Texas with COVID symptoms, and Joff Neal had to go out there essentially with a couple of training partners and figure this thing out against the best opponent he's ever fought and probably well, the most difficult style matchup at 170. Let's for, there, there's something else, too, and I don't know if this is how much of a factor this was or not because, frankly, Stephen Thomas gave a definitive Matador performance here. You did? He was, his footwork was incredible. He was elusive. His range was perfect. His composure was great. As any matador, you've got a you got a fucking powerful monster um, that wants to that wants to put you out. And he didn't really misstep, even when he injured himself, even when he got you know, even when he hurt his knee, um, and after the headbutt, he was just a a really really terrific performance. But Joff Neal almost died this year. Joff Neal, with, right. he doesn't you know he went. He went septic. He had heart failure. Like, yes, he's obviously a physical specimen. He's in tremendous condition. That happened a few months ago, yeah. not 18 months ago, not two years ago. Javiel almost died, and his body had to heal from a blood infection and his heart failing months ago. Yeah, and that is was pretty in, insane. And was, and was in there for 25 minutes. Um, which was not expected initially. I know they, these guys always train, but was in there for 25 minutes during COVID without support against a guy who does what he does as well as anybody uh, in the UFC since since GSP left. Um, as far as far as that that kind of striking pres- uh, uh, control elusiveness uh, or Machida. And although Machida seemed to get hit, generally speaking, more than Stephen Thompson does. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, good perf- good performance from Thompson. I still think he's going to have 
he's going to have trouble with guys who um, can either cut off his movement and put him in a box or who uh, he gets into essentially just like straight up stand in front of them gunfights with. But as long as as long as his feet are moving, he's he's a tough, tough out. And I think we'll continue to be. Um, the question is, what's you know, it is is at his advanced age. Remember, Stephen Thompson was like thirty three or something when he got to us, right? In the UFC, uh, he was younger than that, but you're right, he was up there Not in his twenties. He had already had an accomplished kickboxing career. Oh, I don't think he was up there in his twenties. I think, unless I mean, my my brain with MMA time isn't fantastic. Two thousand twelve so, is when he came into the UFC, so that was eight years ago. Yeah, he was twenty nine, yeah, basically. God. That seems like I remember watching that fight and him, that question mark kick. He flattened Dan Stitkin with, and GSP came out and congratulated him. And that was yeah, that was almost nine years ago. That yeah. really blows my mind. And then he lost that next fight to Matt Brown. You know that was a crazy fight. Yeah, it was that was a war, but he showed some serious grit then that he still holds to this day at age thirty-seven, and I think that served him well. Yeah, he's a. There is not a he. He's he's the Dale Murphy of MMA. I don't know if you remember Dale Murphy, but no, uh, sir. Dale Murphy. Dale Murphy was a National League MVP, late seventies, early eighties star for the Atlanta Braves, who was known as the nicest guy in baseball. Uh. He kind of looked. He kind of looked physically like Stephen Thompson, and he didn't. He was one of those guys who didn't curse. You know, he would he would foul a ball off his foot and say, "Oh, nuts!" You know, <laughs> you're, you're like in this tobacco chewing, spitting like late seventies, like you know like real ornery before cameras or everything like crusty ball player world he right. was, he was a Stephen Thompson he was a he was an, a, a truly uh nice person it's funny how all the karate guys are like that yeah when you think about like Machida GSP and Stephen Thompson it's like could you could you think of like three <laughs> three less mean guys than that yeah no i absolutely agree with you i think part of it is just the culture in martial arts about uh respect and discipline and 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 just actually being kind to people around you to your teammates well and in karate specifically because it doesn't seem to be in all aspects of mma definitely not all aspects it's the traditional martial arts i would say that taekwondo probably has some of that as well but we don't get a whole lot of high-level taekwondo guys coming into mma since that style don't talk that way about herschel walker <laughs> it was Herschel Walker with the? By the way, the nicest guy. Also, am I wrong? Oh yeah, you're right. Although I think he's, I think he's got like some weird beliefs. Yeah, Stephen Thompson is a kind, nice guy. He's a gentleman, and he wears it on his sleeves. Right? He's not, he's not trying to be a tough guy by any means. He can be kind to his opponent before he whoops that ass. And that was the case in this one. Yeah, Joff Neal was missing several things. One of them is fakes and feints. Right? He was giving Thompson nothing to think twice about. When Joff Neal was moving forward, you knew he was going to throw, and that means Thompson will have the opportunity to shift his head <laughs> off the center line and counter. And toward the end of the fight, when after Thompson had hurt his knee, which I think maybe came from the clinch when Joff Neal uh, landed a knee to his kind of inner thigh, um, Thompson ended up just kind of willing to stay in the pocket. Joff Neal felt like he had to pick it up to to give himself a shot at winning this fight. And Thompson just stayed in the pocket, kept, kept shifting his head off the center line under and around and on the outside of Joff Neal's straight punches, encountering effectively uh, between his reach advantage and his vast experience in kickboxing, Joff Neal's lack of fakes, Joff Neal's lack of cutting the octagon off, as you alluded to, all of those things attributed to it. And I think it's unfortunate that Joff Neal wasn't able to come in here with his head coach 
you know, behind him, he had Alex Morono, who had f- competed earlier that night and lost to Anthony Pettis in his corner. I think it was his probably chief corner. So it was like this very odd situation where you essentially have like, you know, a, a classmate going into a big, uh, a big test or a big competition. And his study mate was essentially a fellow classmate rather than his teacher or tutor. Um, I think that can really make a big difference, but Joff Neal wasn't ready for Stephen Thompson. Stephen Thompson could still do some pretty magical things at age 37 to even the hottest of prospects. Uh, he is the gatekeeper to the stars, but it is extremely hard to get through this test for anyone at 170. Nick, uh, Stephen Thompson still has it all together and I would still give him the edge over guys like Robert Whitaker to this day, man. If there's somebody that's aggressive and willing to throw strikes at him, Stephen Thompson is going to get the advantage over you. Um, and and then we had Jose Aldo, Marilyn Vera. This is another fight that we disagreed on. Uh, I picked Jose Aldo because I thought that his boxing, his athleticism and experience would, would do well against Marlon Vera, who has great kicks, but really kind of mediocre boxing for this level. Not very athletic, and he doesn't counter well. So when Jose Aldo was throwing his strikes in that first round, Marlon Vera was mostly just blocking. And even though Vera was trying to get that game going, trying to push forward, uh, it wasn't enough. In that second round, I thought Vera took the second round. It was competitive. And then in that third round, Jose Aldo switched it up, which I loved. He went for that takedown. It was a veteran move. It's not a move that he's known for by any means, but that's exactly what he needed to do in order to take the danger away, in order to not allow Marlon Vera to get stronger in that third round. He took his back, controlled him the entire basically five minutes and uh, took a clear-cut decision, man. What did you think of the co-main? Yeah, I was... I, I thought that Vera... I was. I thought it would be cool if Vera became another star and, like, took a step up. I knew there wasn't a great shot of that, but I thought... Um, listen, he did really well, and he was... Pu- I thought the momentum was going... It was, what, what we thought happened hap- was happened, for the most part. It's just... Aldo won the first. I think a strong case for Vera in the second. Momentum yep. seemed to be going his way. Yep. And Jose Aldo relied on an aspect of his game that we don't see a lot. When's the last time we saw Jose Aldo have a body lock on anybody? Yeah. Like or and he went he went to his bag of tricks. Like we forget. We forget that when Aldo showed up at a young age, he was a black belt. And and he just he was smart. He was a smart, crafty veteran who locked it up. It was not a. Th- it was not a fun third round to watch, but Aldo. He's hungry and wants to be there and won and won the fight because his skills were better. That's it. Yeah, I mean, if you look, there's a lot of people who I think would call Jose Aldo kind of past his prime and and a fraction of his former self. I think there's some diminishing, clearly, right? Like he's not quite as durable as he used to be. Uh, I'm sure he's losing some level of athleticism, but I don't know. His reflexes are still there. He's still fast. He still hits very hard, and he's been incorporating more of his kicking game lately. And if you look at the people that have beaten him in the last many years, right, it's uh, Conor McGregor, Max Holloway, Alexander Volkanovsky, Marlon Moraes, and Peter Yan. These are championship-level fighters, and Marlon Moraes was a close decision that I thought Moraes deserved, to be fair, but you know, that was probably the lowest level of opponent that he lost to, and that was when Moraes was truly at his peak. Uh, you know, he he had uh, finished a couple of his last few opponents leading up to that between Rafael Sunsau, Jimmy Rivera, Aljamain Sterling, and I know that he had that Henry Cejudo loss before the Aldo fight, but, you know, he's a, he, he was a championship-level fighter at the time, and that's who Aldo has kind of lost to. These up-and-coming prospects, they haven't been cutting it against Jose Aldo, and Marlon Vera was no exception. Uh, Marlon Vera definitely needs to work on his boxing game. 
he it's just a big hole in his game and it showed in his last loss as well which was somewhat controversial against Yadong Song and it was the same matchup there and I felt strongly about this and I talked about it on our last episode is that if he couldn't handle Yadong Song's pressure boxing if he was too fast if he hit too hard and all that Vera was doing was blocking and waiting for an opportunity to push forward with kicks he certainly wasn't going to do well against Jose Aldo and even though he had a decent second round, uh, I thought that Aldo clearly took that first and third round and uh, and clearly took the decision. I, I thought, again, I'm impressed by Aldo switching up the game plan, which I think was the difference between a win and a loss because we could have seen a rendition of that second round in the third, and then Jose Aldo would have walked away with a 29-28 decision loss. So good on him, man. And here's the thing. Marlon Vera fights frequently. He is still, I think, only 28 years old. So he's he's got plenty of contendership to kind of work up to in his career. He can still get, you know, four or five fights this year and possibly put himself in line for a top five spot uh, toward the end of 2021, despite uh, Jose Aldo's success in this matchup. And then we had Michelle Pereira versus Chaos Williams, which I think a lot of people were fascinated by the matchup. Chaos Williams so far showed that he has stone hands, and if he hits you clean, you are going out. Michelle Pereira showed a really solid chin and a lack of discipline earlier in his UFC career, but he's really been... Uh, a lot more careful, a lot more disciplined ever since his kind of weird loss to Tristan Connolly, which, to be fair, I, I thought he still deserved that decision. Um, and and he came in here, you know, using his footwork, staying away from Chaos Williams where he could. And when he would pop in with those jab crosses, with, with those straight punches, um, Chaos Williams did a pretty good job, I thought, of countering him. He's mostly a counter striker, sometimes not super clean looking, to be honest with you. As the fight progresses, I've talked about his lack of technique in the past. And Michelle Perez stayed careful. He ended up walking away with the decision, but I thought Chaos Williams probably earned those first two rounds uh, based on his counter striking. I think he landed like almost twice as many strikes as Pereira did uh, in the first 10 minutes of this bout. Yeah, it. Uh, this is one of those fights, right? that we all get super, super excited about and we're waiting and waiting for these fireworks and they don't quite happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That so was it was kind point. of a bummer there, but at the same time, like, you know, it's on us for like hoping that Michelle Perea fights stupid. True. <laughs> yeah, is, that's, that's the fascinating thing is that he has a reputation for fighting stupid and he has been cleaning that up lately, but it which make, makes, but him it makes him must, it makes him must see TV. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it's well, it's his lack of discipline prior, but still, you're right. He's still fun to watch. This fight wasn't particularly entertaining, but he's still fun to watch when he's not deathly scared of his opponent knocking him out. And despite the serious power that Chaos Williams showed in his prior two bouts, Michelle Pereira was willing to mix it up to some extent. Uh, just wasn't willing to obviously stay in the pocket with the heavy hitter. And Pereira took some clean shots, man, and he took them well. Uh, the guy's chin is not to be questioned. I think his conditioning has been in question in some of his decision-making in the past. But I would argue that if he fixes up his MMA IQ, which he's, in my opinion, been doing, it's going to be hard to beat in this one. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the UFC, out of anger with this performance, matched them up with somebody like Colby Covington or, or something along those lines. But, yeah, Oof. I mean, look, I, I'm really glad we got to see Cass Williams go three rounds. He showed that he has pretty decent conditioning, showed that he can go in there with a arguably more skilled guy and and potentially outwork him on points, even though he did not earn the decision. I thought he had a decent showing considering how boring the fight was. Um, and then, Nikolai, we had Rob Font and Marlon Marais. 
I think a lot of people are giving Rob Font a lot of credit for that win over Marais. And don't get me wrong, he got a first-round knockout. He deserves that credit. But I think at this point, we realize that Marlon Marais, um, he's just not durable anymore, man. He's a shot fighter at this point. Yep. Between the way that he was finished by Corey Sanhagen uh, in the second round a couple of months ago, and then he dove right into another fight literally two months later, Nick, against a hard hitter in Rob Font. We said that, yeah, I said I said that on the previous show. You that, did. Like, not too early to come back. And tough because it's like I was rewatching his fight with Aldo and they were like Marais one of the bigger guys at 135 he's supposed to be this intimidating bomber at 135 and he you know he went from a guy who against against Rivera and Sterling wait did he he KO'd Rivera right yeah he did Marais KO'd Rivera Sterling and Asuncao exactly and then look like you know look like a world beater for a round against Cejudo uh ultimately with where he's at in his career right now He's a glass cannon, and if if guys are ready for it, they you know, uh, like he's he's not going to be successful against the elite in the division. I think that's I think that's been made clear, um, and you know, there's a, who's who's he been training with? Is he still? He's not. He's been American out of Jersey, right? Yeah, he's been okay, out of so Jersey yeah. for a while. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah, I'm not that interested in seeing him fight again. <laughs> to, yeah, I mean, to be he, honest, the, the guy definitely needs to take a long break. I think his mindset is to do the opposite, kind of like he did, you know, two months after the Sanhagen fight, is to jump right in there and get that the, the taste of that loss out of his mouth. And instead, he took another wallop, man. And and I mean, there there are going to be a whole lot of people that prior to this fight would have been intimidated before fighting Marlon Moraes, who will not think twice about it at this point. It was a jab, Nick. It was a Rob Font jab that nicked him. And I talked about Rob Font's excellent jab, but man, like it doesn't knock people down, man. It, it, it was well, a I thought bad the Sanhagen blow. I thought a lot of this. I thought the Sanhagen blow was kind of grazing. It's, I don't know. Well, it's, mean, a, it's a heel kick to the temple. Like I agree that. Uh, he yeah, had the I thought, it, hit, I thought it missed the temple and hit more the crown, but I mean, maybe, maybe, right. we're, maybe we're splitting, maybe we're splitting hairs here. But the fact remains. He's not durable. They talk up, and we have to be very careful with the way. And we'll talk about this later in the show with comment with how commentary can sway uh, people. But you know, Rob Rob Font's boxing is good. His training with Calvin, you know, Calvin Cater, uh, those are those are two very very solid boxers. Uh, there's a lot more to MMA, and we'll see in Rob in Rob Font's next fight. He's probably going to get paired with somebody. Um, who's going to be more of a takedown threat? And we'll see. You know, we'll see who that's who that's going to be. And considering how easily he gave up takedowns in this bout, I think there's reason to believe that that would give him trouble once again. Uh, like he clearly hasn't fixed that issue. I th- well, that's the thing. I actually think Frankie Edgar's a really bad matchup for Rob Font, but Edgar, I believe, has a has, is fighting Sanhagen, which I think is a really bad matchup for Edgar. Yeah, although Frank Edgar lately is not nearly as durable as he used to be, and he doesn't like he he goes for takedowns, but does he really keep people down? I feel like not so much. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, it depends. If it depends on the guy. It True. depends on it depends on the guy. Like the Yaya Rodriguez fight wasn't that long ago. Like if some it if the guy is a if a guy is a competent, you know, if the guy is a competent grappler and good scrambler, it's gonna it's gonna be very difficult. If the guy is someone who, um. You know, it's been has been held down by less effect, like less effective wrestlers. Like, if you're going to get out grappled and owned on the ground by Rafael Asuncao, I think 
I think that that knee tap from Frankie Edgar is going to be problematic for you still. Yeah. Um, I'm there but, with you. And like, yeah, he's a good, he's a, I mean, Ruffon's a good boxer, but is he, does he have, I mean, does he have much less pop than, I mean, does he have much more pop than Pedro Munoz has who hit Edgar a lot and didn't any, and, and you know, he, he busted him up a bit, but he never, it wasn't like Edgar's taken bigger. Sh- I, yeah. I missed. We'll see. We'll see if, we'll see if, if guys, I would say, I would say Rob Font's right hand is probably stronger than most of Munoz's offense. Um, just, just for the clean technique, the leverage that he gets yeah. with his longer limbs. But I, I think there's an interesting dynamic to discuss here, which seems to be rearing its head specifically at bantamweight at 135 pounds. Um, we had Miguel Torres back in the WEC days, back in like the, the 2008 range, who like looked like he was at the top of the division, destroying people, and then suddenly just fell off a cliff and started losing fight after fight after fight after dominating that division for so long. Right, we had Henan Barrow who was dominating the division for a while there, and then suddenly fell off a cliff and started losing fight after fight after fight. And we're seeing this happen now with Marlon Moraes, who granted has never been truly at the top of the division. He never held that belt, but man, was he close. And man, just a sudden immediate drop off. It just seems like when your durability goes and your confidence goes in a weight division that really relies on speed, on on being in the moment, reacting quickly, um, in a division that's pretty high level, especially now more than ever, uh, like it, it just all falls apart, man. And these guys are examples of it. I, I don't know of another division in which we've seen this happen with this frequency to this extent, where a guy can just go from the top of the world to just an absolute jobber in no time. Hey, we I mean, we've seen it. Brian Bowles, Michael McDonald. Yeah, like, yeah, that's right. No shortage of guys who, for a hot minute, you know, had the stuff. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're not kidding about that. Um, and then, Nick, we had Greg Hardy basically dominate the first round against Marching Tabura. I think, did you and I agree? On, yeah, you and I both agreed on Tabura winning this bout, and we got this one right. Greg yeah, it Hardy, got a little scary, though, in the first yeah, round. But boy, really it was, sure was satisfying. Yeah, it really was. Once he got him down in that second, but in that first round, Greg Hardy was doing whatever he wanted on the feet. He was as aggressive as he wanted to be, but he's always had a conditioning issue and he's always had a ground game issue. And I spoke last uh, last episode about the fact that Greg Hardy's done a good job with his training at American Top Team of hiding his holes. Right? He he didn't necessarily show that he's better at them. He didn't show that he's got better conditioning or that he's got better Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. But he has shown that he's developed a stand-up and he's done a good job of avoiding those positions in which he is weak. Uh, he's done a decent job of avoiding being late in a fight with a certain kind of opponent for the most part. And man, it just took, you know, like, for him to believe that he could finish Tybura and then to really dump all of his energy uh, late in that first round. And then that second round, once Marcin Tybura got top position, man, Greg Hardy literally turned over and I, gave up. He may as well have tapped the strikes. Seen- I have yeah, I have not seen anybody look as helpless. I mean, Tabura on top of you is is a difficult thing, but uh, not like a anyone. not like a de- but, not, not like a death sentence for most decent heavyweights. You know what I'm saying? Not a death sentence. For, not death sentence for heavyweights who know who know how to grapple. I mean, right. you would like the fact of the matter is in training for Marcin Tabura, the number one thing you have to do is find a bunch of guys like Marcin Tabura, which isn't that hard. No. Like gi- like giant like eastern eastern block grapplers are not you know hard to come by, and you pay them to sit on your chest. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, essentially. You know, and you've if you an American Top Team <clears throat> is known for that sort of training where they put you against the fence for round after round after round 
if you're facing a guy that's going to do that to you. Or to be fair, in, gen- in general training, right? They they start you with your opponent getting your back. They start you with your opponent in mount so that you would be comfortable in those positions. I'm getting the impression Greg Hardy has a different kind of training regimen at ATT, judging by his reaction to just having Marching Tabor on top of him. Uh, there's that, and then, I mean, there's also just that I think a lot of fighters who are not as famous as Greg Hardy, and this has nothing to do with Greg Hardy as a person, but has to do with physiology. And some, I do think that some people are just genetically predisposed to gas regardless of what, regardless of how hard they work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, maybe. Yeah. But, but for a guy that like, I, I would agree with you if we saw improvements in his other weak point, which is his ground game. But we haven't yeah. really seen improvements in either. And yeah, look, he's a 280-something pound man. He's had trouble cutting weight, which shows a lack of discipline. To me, like that's really what this is, is a lack of discipline on his part. Now, is he capable of going five rounds hard ever in his life? Probably not. But is he capable of going I, two rounds at a decent pace? He should yeah. be. If he's I mean, anecdotally, hard. I know I, I have a friend who has a friend that played in the NFL with Hardy. Uh-huh. And said that as far as training and hard work go, that he's com- he's completely psycho on another level, and was and was just was beyond his teammates in the NFL in that regard. Now imagine like, if you were following your dream and you were doing exactly what you wanted to do since you were a little kid. You got huge opportunities. You performed. And then suddenly that dream was taken away from you because of your own actions, but it was taken away from you. And you got to settle for a completely different sport that you never really loved to begin with. I do wonder if that's, that's going to affect his that, discipline and passion. It's definitely possible. I mean, here's the thing. <laughs> MMA is not a team sport. No. <laughs> You're... Once that cage closes, there's nobody. It's all on you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. That's 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 an that's an important distinction. And I, you know, like I wasn't like I don't I don't know what happened with Greg Hardy personally. Like, taking everything everything out of it personally, even though it's it's kind of fun to watch a guy that got uh, got put on the fast track uh, get beat up. Um, I just don't. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's face it. Even the the other guys who came in from football, Mitrion and Schwab, they, you know, they had pretty low ceilings despite their athletic gifts. They accomplished some stuff because they're amazing athletes. Yeah, um, but they're not, you know, they're not Nganu. They're not. Although Mitrion beat Fedor, like based on who Fedor is now, he's not. You know, those guys aren't. They're not Fedors. They're not Nogueras. No. Um, they're they're big. They're big, powerful dudes. But the the complete MMA fighter, you know, has uh, should be able to exploit the weaknesses and inexperience. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely hear that. And Greg Hardy, which is, is what far happened, from which is com- exactly yeah. what. To, yeah, to, that's exactly what we, happened. We saw a middle. We saw a middle of the pack heavyweight who's who's got a more a more diverse skill set, um, comp- competent on the feet, and really really good up, up against the cage and on the ground. Yep. Um, you know put the fight at his advantage yeah I, I would i would argue that merchant martin tibor lately has shown that he's more than just kind of a middle of the pack heavyweight i mean this is a guy and we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the award segment this is a guy that was one and four uh in the stretch between 2017 and 2019 right and then came into 2020 and went four and oh against like 
Guys with some skill. Sergei Spivak is a pretty decent heavyweight, right? He's more in that middle of the pack. Maxim Grishin is a pretty decent light heavyweight, although, you know, he had to take that fight on very short notice. Ben Rothwell is a respected heavyweight, a little higher than maybe middle of the pack. Greg Hardy, a little higher than middle of the pack. I would say that Tybura is showing at this point that if you have an exploitable hole, um, he's going to take advantage of it. He's in a good place mentally. I think his fight IQ right now is at the highest place, and he's confident. I think that can make all the difference. Let's quickly breeze through the rest of this card, Nick. Anthony Pettis beat Alex Marone after a rough first round and then went on to essentially explore free agency, signed with the PFL. I think like he has a shot. I don't know at- how much exploration he did. I think that was all happening before because he, he signed this deal like you know days later basically it's like he got a cheese he got a cheeseburger and then signed the deal yeah i think he took this fight mostly because he wanted to kind of fight out his contract and either i don't know if he was even open to getting the offer from the ufc but i think there's a benefit to possibly getting on some vitamins at the pfl fighting much lower level of competition right the more the alex morono level of competition rather than the you know tony ferguson in his prime nate diaz and, and Dustin Poirier, Diego Ferreira, Max Holloway, Edson Barboza, Eddie Alvarez, Rafael Dos Anjos. These are his losses over the last many years. He's not going to be seeing a whole lot of guys in that level in the PFL. There's a chance that he won't win that million-dollar tournament, but I think, he, I think he, he's got a higher chance of doing well there than anywhere else, especially if he can get on some vitamins. Penny Kian Zod, I think you will also get this- sponsorship money. Yeah, I mean, that's he's gonna right. get there's just a, right. there's a lot of there's just a lot of benefits in, in freedom. Yeah. Like the fact of the matter is that for a brief period, a very brief period, Anthony Pettis was one of the key top three faces of the UFC. He got the yes. Wheaties box, he was in tons of commercials. Um and then unfortunately he became just another guy. Yeah. But he still he still has because of the showtime kick, you know, in, in, in a decade of spinning shit, he has um and they must have data to back this up. He's he's got like some name recognition, and he's yeah. got a highlight reel. Um, I know how much of that highlight reel they can show. Probably not very much. No, <laughs> but um, he com- you know he comes with that, and they're gonna the PFL marketing machine. It's this is a coup for them. He, they're getting a they're getting a uh, the same way you know as Fedor ending up in Bellator. They're getting a not although he's not as far past his prime as Fedor was. Um, they're maybe strike force uh, Fedor. They're getting a, a past this prime guy who for a lot of casuals is something close to must see TV. Yeah. Are they overpaying for him? I don't know, but Pettis is probably going to make out financially better than he was doing at the in the UFC. Yeah, I would not. I would not be surprised about that at all. And then uh, Penny Kianzad, you and I disagreed on this pick. I thought that Penny was would be able to defend takedowns at least in the latter two rounds. That's exactly how it worked out. She outstruck uh, Sajara Eubanks, who just has a consistent cardio issue. She might be a girl that works really hard and that just doesn't have the potential to keep on trucking in that third round at at full level. She just loses conditioning and loses confidence. Darren Wynn took down Antonio Arroyo at will and and basically did whatever he wanted. Arroyo took the fight on super short notice and. And he allowed Darren Wynn to not have to weigh in at 185, which I think was a mistake. Tali Santos basically dominated Jillian Robertson. I think, like, Tali Santos has arrived. This is an impressive, yeah. impressive win. Um, and then uh, Tefan and Chukwu, and Chukwi, excuse me, uh, G- beat Jamie Pickett. Really impressive 
uh, decision. I yep. thought, I'm glad that he went the distance. I'm glad he cut down to 185. And that speed issue that you and I discussed, like that wasn't a factor. I think you, uh, I think this was your, he was your first pick. Um, Jamie yep. Pickett is a much faster man, but didn't matter. Tafan was just too mentally strong and too skilled standing. Jimmy Flick made a great UFC debut with a first round submission of Cody Durden. I changed my pick from Flick to Durden uh, from there. The first time this fight was booked to, to now, which is funny. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. I, I should have believed in Jimmy Flick's submission ability. And I, Cody Durden made a huge mistake in that early on he went for a takedown. What the fuck are you doing? That's the only place you're going to lose this fight. Why would you make it easy for Jimmy Flick? It was it was idiotic. And then Chris Ochiagos, uh, who was uh, my pick, uh, ended up beating Carlton Minos. Carlton has shitty takedown defense, not very dynamic or explosive. And Chiagos had enough in those first two rounds and, you know, enough enough of a takedown ability disparity in the third round to, to clearly win, I think, a 30-27. So a pretty, you know, pretty decent night of fights overall. I think that, like, the yeah, prior I mean, card was a little bit better, but this was fun. The prior, but the prior card was, like, one of the best cards. Yeah, it really was a great card. I agree. Um, Nikolai, we're, let's let's take a break. Let's get into the geekies, Nikolai. The MMA Geeks Awards, the year-end awards. We're gonna we're gonna break down some of the most notable moments, some of the most notable fighters uh, in just a moment. We'll be back. And we're back on the MMA Geeks podcast. We're going to get into the year-end awards, the Geekies, Nikolai. We uh, have some kind of awards that are different from a lot of the other platforms that that run these uh, uh, year-end awards, Nikolai. And we have some that are a little more standard, like Fight of the Year. I guess, um, like, I, I kind of just uh, jotted down some uh, categories uh, almost at random, so they're no particular order. But I think that... This fighter deserves mention for being absolutely out of his rocker. Uh, and and to me, like it's pretty clear who it's been this year, I think more than anybody else. There is Tony Ferguson and there's Diego Sanchez, both of them completely out of their minds at this point. And I don't know if CTE is a factor or this was the way that they were going to uh, kind of mature in age over the years anyway. But Tony Ferguson, you know, getting dominated twice. And then in that second, after that second fight, when he lost to Alex Oliveira, where he got... Um, I'm sorry, is it Charles Charlie Oliveira, where he got completely dominated, almost armbarred, and, and almost finished in the first round, and possibly his elbow broken. He like posted a video after that talking about how that's when he broke Charles Oliveira's when he got his arm popped like six times. Um, he's off his rocker. And Diego Sanchez with his phantom coach, with his, uh, with his craziness there, is another guy who I think is a candidate for this one, Nikolai. Yeah, Mike Mike Perry also. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mike Perry deserves on that list. Uh, if you had to, if you had to put one of them at the top, Nikolai, who would it be? Well, tell me a little bit more about John Fitch and QAnon because I don't know. Yeah, J- John 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 Fitch is pretty pretty crazy with uh, with some of his theories. Um, I haven't been following him closely, but from what I understand, there's a lot of insane conspiracies about the election results and. And all kinds of other just insanity that makes absolutely zero sense. Um, the guy's gone off his off his rocker. He's a guy that I used to root for, especially when it came to him kind of always being in that second spot, never quite being able to beat a guy like George St. Pierre in the UFC. And the UFC really disliked him. And he had a bit of a tiff with the UFC over um, his likeness rights when it comes to the video game. So I was rooting for him in those days as kind of the the semi underdog. Yeah, and, and it's allegedly a bright guy. Like he's went, you know, he went to Purdue. Like it's yeah. not, you know, it's not shit kicker university. 
Yeah, that's the thing. He seems like a bright guy. He like got on steroids late in his career, suddenly got into incredible shape out of nowhere. And to be fair, he's been beating people that were on steroids throughout his career, I'm sure, leading up to that. But yeah, like it just seems like things went wayward a little bit for John Fitch after his UFC career. And again, it just shows you the need for some sort of retirement situation for these fighters. Um, you know, like whether it be CTE, whether it be just like a natural progression, um, it's it's crazy what a lot of these fighters go through. And and then obviously Mike Perry, who is an absolute just nutcase. And at this point, uh, I think either 500 or below in the UFC, uh, the man is crazy. I'm going to pick a, as my official fighter who's out of his rocker of the year. I think I'm going to end up giving the edge to Diego Sanchez. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and then this next category I think is pretty unusual. Who did not have a great year but should have? The the couple of names that I wrote down for me at least was Conor McGregor and Angela Hill. Those are kind of the top two. McGregor who came in in January, basically ran through Donald Cerrone and then talked about post-fight about how he was going to have a season. He was going to fight three or four times this year and and do some big things, and then we never basically heard from him again because the UFC didn't want to waste him on, a I guess, a fight card that wouldn't have fans because he can bring in like $10 million uh, in revenue from that alone. Um, But to McGregor's credit, he did fight really hard to try and get himself a matchup with Diego Sanchez, who was on a big losing streak. So I, I don't know whether that's a reason to commend him or to deride him. But Angela Hill, who lost two extremely close decisions, who is literally at the best point in her career when it comes to skill. But she lost a close one to Claudia, Claudia Cadelia and then a close one to Michelle Waterson. Um, I think that there needs to be some mention maybe of her being a bit of a sore loser. Cadelia's decision should have gone her way, but it was close. And then Michelle Waterson, I thought, could have easily gone either way. And I gave the slight edge to Waterson, even though I'm biased toward Hill. And Hill kind of, you know... Didn't take either of those losses well, uh, but she's somebody who, if she had gotten those two decisions, could have been riding high in the top five at uh, strawweight right right now. And instead, she's in a position where she's riding a two-fight losing streak, even though she is very skilled and one of the best fighters at 115. Yeah, I'm hoping uh, we'll see. We'll see what 2021 uh, bring you know brings for her because she's still she's just still looking for that signature victory. Yeah, yeah, she, you know, she really is. I got she when she's been it. again. I mean, she beat. I mean, Mariana Moroz is a is is a that's a tough out. But yeah, in the fights against the names on you know Andrade, um, <clears throat> Andrade, Gadea, uh, Ansarov, Waterson, those are times when it it hasn't worked out for her. Yeah, I mean her her win against Luma uh, Lukbunmi looks even better after Lukbunmi's last fight. But absolutely. Um, but yeah, there's only there's one person I would add to this list, who is uh, Francis Ngannou. Um, ah. You know, we only get to see Francis Ngannou fight about 20 seconds a year, uh, and You're it's not kidding. like he wants it. He wants to fight. He's frustrated. He says he's losing the best years of his career. But if you're in the heavyweight division, do you want to? I mean. Like, do you want to fight this guy? Like, it's it's very it's very hard. And also, you know, Stipe, listen, Stipe wants respect as champion. He wants time to heal and things like that. And he's acting like other champions do with his frequency of fighting a lot of the time. Um, and he's done with you know he's he's kind of done with the UFC wanted. He had the additional fight with Cormier. Yep. But um, 
Like Stipe deserves more respect than he's reser- he's deserved, 100%. and Ngannou deserves to be fi- and and Ngannou deserves to be fighting as as much as he wants. <laughs> like yeah, I'm there with and him. we and his fan and his fans, we want to see Ngannou fight. Um, but Ngannou, so, understandably, is now waiting for a title shot since Stipe isn't quite ready to to go yet. Yeah, he's waiting for a title shot, and I get that. I mean, you'd think that somebody in the division would sign up for that fight for the chance, but I guess. Like what's the worst that's gonna happen? He he hits you, and then every you know all the guys that he knocks out um, seem to come back okay and be all right. I don't know if it's because it's usually not a flush shot or what, but I it's not like he's literally killing people in there. I mean, <laughs> so he he spent less than three minutes in his last four fights knocking people out almost immediately. So like it is a scary fight for anyone, but at this point, I think we're dealing with a bit of a different dynamic. Why would he want to keep fighting when he is due for a title shot? What if he slips under a banana peel? What if there's a cut? Like, like what if he does actually lose? Right, like, like to yeah, a guy I like Curtis bl- Blades. I don't blame him. And, yeah. and I guess they're shooting for. Mar- I guess they're shooting for March with John Jones fight with John Jones fighting the winner of of Stipe and Ganu. Yeah, um, yeah, that sounds so we'll right s- to me. You know, we'll see. But he's he's someone who he all we had is that little fight with Rosenstrike, which. Was basically, you know, two two monsters staring at each other until they weren't. So, is he your official winner for the award for who didn't have a great year but should have? Um, I think that's a great. I think there's a great argument to be made. He could have been a UFC great argument. Heavyweight I think. Champion I, think right Ma- now. I think McGregor just because he was ready to fight because he there's were lots of fights available to him. And he started out hot, but against a guy who's a mediocre fighter at best, probably not even a top 15. So, like, McGregor really didn't show us anything this year. If you want to feel good about McGregor, rewatch the Khabib fight and realize that he's that he did better than almost anyone else. Yeah. And that his his athleticism and his balance and he, he made – he was a tough fight. He was a tough fight for Khabib. And that was, that was a fight of inches. And, of course, once Khabib – was had the fight in in his domain um he he was able to bring it home but man it wasn't easy to get it there not like not like gagey which was like a which was like a knife through hot butter yeah yeah i definitely agree uh he definitely gave him the hardest time of of anyone else that could be finished at the very least in his career and uh and then we have the award for like the biggest splash of the year right what fighter made the biggest splash in mma i think I think it's got to be Hamzat Shemaev. It's got to be Shemaev. Yeah. There's other people who's like, if you look at their narrative, it's more impressive, but nobody did it while being scarier and over a shorter, shorter amount of time. There was like a three month period where he was like all anybody could talk about. Yep. Like Kevin, Kevin Holland had a more exciting, more interesting year, but nobody, everybody wants to see. We, there's still so many unanswered questions and so many secrets about Shemaev. Even this this week with Darren Stewart coming out and saying, like, I train with this guy and you guys haven't seen anything and he's fucking terrifying. Yeah. He's like only adds only adds to the legend. We we've seen Kevin Hall lose. We've seen Kevin Hall like learn. We've seen him win. He's really, really good. But with Shemaev, it's kind of like we have we have no we have no idea what the ceiling is or what we're looking at here. So yes, by far the biggest splash. Yeah, I mean, six months ago, Nick, we had never heard of Kamzat Shemaev. Just think about it that way. Yep. He debuted yep. on, on July 15th, and ever since then, he has been 
at the tip of everyone's mouth when it comes to the sport of mixed martial arts. So, yeah, I'm there with and you. The biggest splash award goes to Amzat Shemaev. By the way, uh, fighters will be flying in over the course of the next uh, month or so collecting. Who has COVID, who has COVID by the way, Shemaev, right now. Oh, does he? Has, has that been confirmed? Yeah. Yeah, the fight's off. He's got COVID. So that, that's a fight that was canceled twice because each guy had COVID. It's funny because his team uh, made an Instagram post about how he is, uh, you know, he's not fighting and he doesn't have COVID, but the UFC will announce eventually what the reason is. That, that's kind of odd. Why would they go out of their way to lie? Uh, for the best newbie award, Nikolai, the, the, the best uh, fighter that kind of came in this year and who made kind of a difference, who, who like got on everybody's radar. I think there are three um, candidates that come to mind for me, uh, Jamal Hill, Hamzat Shumayev, and Ilya Teporia. And to be honest with you, Jamal Hill is already in the top uh, eight or ten, I believe. Ilya Teporia, in my opinion, showed that he is an absolute monster. Um, and, and, and maybe Ilya and Shumayev had kind of similar accomplishments in the UFC in their first two bouts. I would say Jamal Hill takes it uh, for me as the best newbie because he just came off a big win uh, over Ovin St. Peru, who, you know, doesn't lose to shitty fighters. He usually beats these prospects. He is two. Uh, he's actually 3-0 and in the UFC. He should be 3-0. Uh, his win over Klitsen Abreu got overturned because of a marijuana. Uh, he popped for marijuana or something in competition. It's absolutely ridiculous, but he should be 3-0 and with two of those fights coming by knockout against Klitsen Abreu and Ovin St. Peru, who are, like, in my opinion, both skilled, solid fighters. And in my opinion, he takes the award for newbie of the year. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I I agree. I think I mean there's one guy I want to put on this list, but he was he showed up last year, so he's going to be in a different category. Who would be Casey Kenny? Uh, uh, we that. can talk about. I think we can talk about him a little bit more later. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's there's reason to cover him as well. Uh, Ilya Taporia, who has wins over Yusuf Zalal, who's a serious prospect, and Damon Jackson, yep. who is you know 18 and three leading into that bout, uh, really impressive, but not quite on the level of an Ovin St. Pru win. Um, so I'm there with you. Fighter of the year, Nikolai. I think there are only two names that come to mind for me, and they're Kevin Holland because he went five and zero this year, and then of course Davidson Figueredo, who you know won the title, knocked out uh, Benavides twice, ended up defending his title once, and then fought to an extremely exciting draw with Brandon Moreno a couple of weeks after his first title defense. Really, I thought a great year for him. Obviously, that that for me that weight miss. And the fact that he fought to a draw at the end of the year kind of take away a little bit uh, from Davidson Figueredo's year. So, but he did, you know, win and and essentially dominate a division to to a decent extent during the course of this year. Kevin Holland, however, went five and zero, and most of those wins aren't over any major names, right? Uh, yeah, that's right, right. Joaquin Buckley is like a decent win, but it was on short notice in his USC debut for Buckley. Darren Stewart is an okay win, but he barely survived that one. Charlie Ontiveros was the last-minute replacement and didn't really belong in there with him. I would have loved to see in that matchup against Mahmoud Muradov and uh, Holland. But Ronaldo Souza, the way he knocked him out off his back, that was impressive. He truly put himself on the map. And I think given his personality and everything, he's got a lot of upside going into 2021. And it sounds like he's trying to fight as frequently as he can. He's, I believe, booked for March, but he volunteered to take on Shemaev, uh, or I'm sorry, he volunteered to take on Leon Edwards in the January main event of that first UFC fight night coming back, Nikolai. Yeah, I just, I think, I think, figure, I have to give it to Figueredo, even with the caveats, even though he's not my favorite guy in the world, just because of the performances he gave um, 
that yeah. were was the first Benavides were both Benavides fights Benavides fights this year or just the second one? I believe both were this year. I'm going to double check on yeah. that in just a second. I, I mean, what he what he was doing in a division where two you know two superstars left, like Demetrius Johnson left and Cejudo left, and Figueredo like showed up and only against like top three top three contenders has was just just a force. I just think because of the level of competition um, and the quick turnaround in terms of title defenses for a champion. Yep. yep. Um, I have to, I have to give it to him. Holland's been great. He's been great. He was like, I would say he's the fighter who, who benefited most from COVID. You know, he was always in there. He didn't say no. He jumped in. Yep. He got a fight against a name, a severely divini- diminished name, but a name um, at the end and looked great uh, and looked great doing it. But, I still don't know what he looks like against uh, the the true top five. Yeah, Figueredo was a guy outside, you know, like 18 months ago was a guy outside looking in um, with a loss to Formija and is now, you know, in the in the in the top five or six pound for pound conversation. So I think he, I think he became one of the most terrifying and hardest outs in MMA this year. Um, so I think that. Holland deserves a an award, um, but you ask you you ask UFC fighters who became who, you know, pound for pound wise, who really distinguished themselves this year? It's Davis and Figueroa. Yeah, you know what? I'm there with you. I think uh, Davidson did miss weight against Benavides, but then he smoked him absolutely, like just like knocked him out horribly. And then in that second fight, knocked him down and then submitted him. So that kind of makes up for the weight miss in some ways, I guess. And then even though he went ran to ran through Alex Perez, yeah, 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 ran right through him. And then even though he uh, went to a majority draw with Brandon Moreno, I think like you and I agreed that he probably deserved the decision despite that point miss. And on top of that, he it was an exciting fight. It was a candidate for fight of the year. So yeah, I'm there with and you. He showed every he showed everything you need a champion to show. Yep, uh, I'm there he with you. He showed heart. He showed durability. He showed his. Yeah, I just think. Yep. I'm there with you. Yeah. And, and and again, his danger. He is extremely dangerous standing up. Extremely dangerous on the ground, regardless of the level of competition as he's shown this and he's year. A, and he's smart. He's a fucking smart fighter. Yeah. Like he's got he's got good positional awareness and fight IQ. And do I think he's, you know, is he going to, is he beatable? Yes. I think he's probably, I think he's beatable, but I, you know, do I want to see him fight Cejudo? Like that shit's exciting. Like, yeah, I would love to, you know, I'm not like, let me, I mean, who's Holland, who's Holland's next fight, you know, like, yes, Shemaev would be interesting, but if just one of those like regional guys that he beat this year was swap, was swapped out with. A top ten um, name, yeah. yeah like he beat, he beat. You know, if they had fit in a fight, like the year wouldn't have allowed for this. But if he had beaten Vittori, if he had, uh, if even if he had defeated a Gastelum or a Cannoneer, like or a, or a Costa, like if he had taken like one real scalp, like that was for, that was deep in. I don't like Darren Hill very much. I think he's pretty overrated. But even. Like if he had taken someone that's like firmly positioned in the top, like eight. Uh, yeah, I'm there with you. That, then, that, then that may have won it for him. And and, and again, D- Davidson had a phenomenal year, and he is a you know did it at the very very highest of levels. So, but Holland's, I mean, Holland's thrilling. Yeah, yeah, he is. And Davidson Figueroa's twenty 
one and one. Like that is a sterling record considering he's been fighting in the UFC for several years now. So I'm there with you. The biggest loser of the year, Nick. I think that there are a few candidates in this one. We've got Tyron Woodley. I think he is 0-15 for rounds one. Uh, this is a short I think this is a, I mean, yeah, this is a short conversation because yeah. like we've seen we've seen Marlon Moraes age and get exposed as a glass cannon. We saw Matt Wyman who shouldn't have come back but did, which happens. Yep. Not the first time we've seen that. Nope. Um, Diego Sanchez has been on this trajectory for five or six years. Tony Ferguson was still in a, a fight of the year candidate uh, war. Yep. Um, but with Tyron Woodley, we we literally have seen a guy forget how to fight. Like, no business in there. Nobody wants to see it. Yep. Horrible, horrible and depressing to watch. Some of these other guys may get there. They're not there yet. Nobody wants to after that Wood Jesus after that Woodley fight, um, after the Burns fight. Like we've just, you, oh, we've just we've just seen a guy. Um, it's almost like the version of it's like watching when a baseball player gets the yips. Do you know what the yips are? I don't think so. The yips is a famous baseball thing where, um, and I even had it a little bit when I was a ball player. Um, it's where you kind of forget how to throw. Like it happened to a famous a Mets catcher named Mackie Sasser, where uh-huh. the pitcher would throw the pitch to him, he would catch it, and he literally—I hate using the word literally that way—he actually could not throw the ball back to the pitcher properly. It's almost like a stutter. It's like it, be, it's a, it becomes a stutter in what used to be your natural, uh, your natural uh, um, athletic skill that you had developed, and it completely breaks you down. There's lots of famous cases: Steve uh, Steve Sachs, Chuck Knobloch, both who played second base for the Yankees. Is it psychological? Is it anxiety? Is it whatever? But they just Definitely can't pull the they can't pull the trigger. Um, and I believe that Tyron Woodley has the the combat sports version of the yip of the yips equivalent of it. And it's it's way it's it's hard to watch in baseball. It's way harder to watch in a sport where people are, are trying to kill each other until a referee tells them to stop. You know? So like it's it's just nobody wants to see it, man. It's like go stop, just go do something else. Yeah, I'm I'm there with you. I will say though with Tyron Woodley, it's like it's almost like he got exposed, and to me at least, it's less that he just like his skill necessarily diminished by a lot. I think it's more that he got exposed and his confidence tanked. And like I think it 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 helps the argument for him being the biggest loser. Uh, his trash talk before these fights really helps because he would talk about it like you know I can uh, dominate Cody Covington. He was my warm up rounds and all this shit that he talked, and then to get shellac like that, but. I do have to wonder, Tony Ferguson and Tyron Woodley were kind of long drawn out losses, right? Woodley uh, got finished against Covington. Tony Ferguson got finished uh, against uh, uh, Justin Gaethje earlier this year. Uh, Both these guys were like kind of drawn out losses, whereas Marlon Marais kind of got smoked twice this year. He just got kind of blown out of the water by these young prospects. So the question is like, uh, tar- let's say Tony Ferguson and Tyron Woodley, you know, take a little bit of a break, mental break, rediscover their passion. They could still potentially do well against the right opposition, but Marlon Marais, his inability to take a shot and, and where he was last year I mean, leading yeah. into this year, I think he may have, uh, like, I think Tony Ferguson probably lost the most stock because there was an argument to be made that he was the, the best fighter oh, yeah. at 155 leading into this year. And then now there's an argument to be made that he doesn't belong in the, in the top 10. So to me, it's probably Tony Ferguson at the end of the day. But Marlon Marais, like, he lost his chin and durability, which cannot be gotten back on top of the yeah. loss in confidence that Tony and Woodley both experienced. 
I, I, I understand. It's just I still I still would pick Woodley because yep. Marlon Marlon Marais he looks like now like a glass cannon, like a like a fighter who has lost his durability. Tyron Woodley looks like someone who has just at it looks like Marlon Marais looks looks overmatched and gets and is and is getting finished. Tyron Woodley does not look like someone who has should be or has any idea what to do in the octagon. Maurice yeah. is doing what he should do. He's just getting fucking knocked out. Like yeah. it's not good. Woodley is just like, no, dude, get out of this. Don't just don't go in the cage. You shouldn't be there. That it's a it's slightly it's slightly different, I think. I mean Maurice is in Maurice is in that is in is in the, the late stage Chuck Liddell kind of thing. And I get it, but I just I think Woodley is like a di- a different level of breakdown. Um, and then we have fight of the year, Nick. I think this one's pretty clear, pretty obvious. There shouldn't be much of an argument, in my opinion. Wei Li Zhang versus Joanna Yanjacek, a five-round yep. title fight, uh, which I think was actually the co-main event uh, that evening, followed by another good fight afterward. Uh, Wei Li Zhang and Joanna genuinely went at it. Uh, they both took serious damage. It was nonstop offense. They would just stand in the pocket, both throw, both get hit at the same time, both land at the same time. And Joanna, with the way that you know uh, her her head swelled and it kept swelling and it kept getting bigger, but she acted as if nothing was wrong and and that she had all the propensity to keep pushing. She uh, is a such really a close great fighter. Battle. Absolutely, yeah, they both She's, are. I love. I mean. She's one of those fighters who, like, you know, you rooted for, you got sick of the I'm the Boogie Woman talk. Everyone roots for Rose because Rose is so gosh darn lovable and right. relatable. But holy shit, as far as people who have it and were born to do this, she, Joanna Gia Jacobs is just, she's Joanna Champion. Whether she's got the belt or not, she is the very, very definition of a fighter. And to come back and have fights like that after getting knocked out by Rose, she's, I mean, one day it'll probably go, it'll break, but man, she's just, has it all. Heart, yeah. determination, ability, and Wei Li Zhang, who's soft-spoken and, and kind of new to this, um, and had a, had a messed up camp, came back from, you know, came back from adversity uh, in this fight or had a lot of adversity in this fight. Like just so, so good. Yeah. Fought, fought right through it. Didn't have to come back cause she never stopped. Yeah. From what I remember in this fight, Nick, it was, it was basically like they would each take over the bout, but not like round by round that we normally see in high level MMA. They would each take about 30 seconds of what looked like dominance. And then the other person for 30 seconds would start landing nonstop. And then again, the first person for 30 seconds would have great moments. It was, it was a thrilling, exciting fight. It's something that I, uh, I'm actually want to rewatch, uh, leading into this year and, and all the big stuff we have coming, uh, really exciting bout. They both, uh, certainly deserve this on everybody's scorecards. Uh, excellent, excellent bout. And, and you know what? It was, it was competitive on top of everything else. Yeah, I mean the second number two is is you know Davison versus Moreno, which was not as com- which was very competitive but not as competitive, um, yes. and was also more has recency bias also. But That's that Zhangji and Jankic fight is like, which, and it's funny because the big the I mean that is also the biggest come down of the year is you had the best fight of the year followed by one of the worst fights of the year on the same card, um, with it is uh, Adis- Israel Adesanya and Yoel. Romero. Oh, that's right. 
It's like, oh my god, what a come down. We, we have a we have a few fighters that uh, I thought ha- like showed great resurgence this year. Let's quickly run through this, and they were marching Tabura, who was one and four leading into this year, and then was four and zero throughout this year. He didn't beat any like very very top names, but he beat some guys that are in that bottom half of the top fifteen. Alistair Overeem had a great year after getting his face disfigured uh, late last year. Derek Brunson, a huge resurgence on him, man. Ever since he decided to take MMA seriously again, Glover Teixeira, arguably yep. number one. Contender for the 205-pound title, Panny Kianzad, who looked like a meddling fighter, who came into this year and I think is three and zero this year against some pretty notable names at that weight division. And of course, we got to talk about Jan Blackowitz. No one expected him to be even contending for a title, let alone holding the 205-pound championship, but he did it. I yeah. That said, well, there's a, there's at least one name I want to add to this, but I um first of all, it's, I just want to pat myself on the back a little bit for explaining that I thought Jan Blachowicz was an extremely live dog and quite likely to win that fight in the in the belt which which he did um yep. maybe maybe my my call of the year but also there's a name that, <laughs> that we don't have on our list that I think we really need to add uh which is Jessica Andrade who fought um I hear that, you know after yeah. after losing the belt had a vi- had a very very competitive fight with Rose Namajunas uh terrific fight left Rose battered and bloodied um, but lost it, but then showed up in, uh, in a new weight class, showed up in the 125 pound weight class and looked just, you know, just like a murderer against, uh, Caitlin Kachagian, a, st- a stalwart and contender who came back from that loss strong. So she's got her skills and she's not going anywhere as a top five fighter. She'll ne- I don't think she's got the package to be champion, but like, uh, Valentina Shevchenko has a there's a new she has a, a new da- a new partner on her dance card and it is a scary one who I believe has the ability uh, to really really push her and cause some serious problems. I don't know that it's going to happen, but we could have a new champion at 125 at the end of this year. So Andrade's not Andrade's not going anywhere and she's fighting smarter I think, um, and it's going to be a tough matchup. I very much look forward to that battle, and she did have a, a pretty good kind of end of the year, at, at least with that win over Shukagian. Uh, and then just real quick, uh, there are some new prospects and new contenders this year, and I want to quickly run through some names. Marvin Vittori, who picked up a, a big win late in the year and, and was undefeated this year as well. Jamal Hill, we already talked about. Ilya Teporia is a huge entrance at 145. Yep. Gavin Tucker looked phenomenal this year and really putting all of his skills together. He's a super talented, super, super skilled, meticulous guy. Charles Oliveira, obviously, is a top contender all of a sudden Talia Santos made a big splash Yan Nan, who's probably going to challenge for a title in this next year if that division stays busy Lauren Murphy uh, really arrived at 125 Amanda Hebos's star was born with that win over Paige Van Sant and the interview afterward Miguel Baeza from MMA Masters who's really putting it all together now getting to train with Colby Covington so really getting to sharpen uh, his kind of tools against the very very one of the very best Jiga Jigadze uh, had a great year he had a bunch of fights this year as well and then Casey Kenny who who made a good accounting of himself despite the fact that he does have that loss to Mirab Devashvili I think that was this year but I, I could be wrong um, so yeah man just just an overall good year I think despite the pandemic I mean we could have been sitting here talking about the first four or five events and that's it but they figured it out and they, they put a bunch of cars together we spoke earlier in this episode about how grateful we are for that, Nikolai. Uh, just real quick, mid-fight strategic adjustment of the year. I think it's between Alexander Volkanovsky and that Max Holloway fight. Lost those first two rounds clearly. 
turned it around and won the next three. And then Jose Aldo over Melon Vera in maybe, that third round. Maybe. That's still a, that's one to rewatch because whether or not Max deserved that, it's just a that was a sad fight for Max because, man, he looked like a million bucks in those first two rounds. Yeah, he really did. And I'm not um, sure he didn't win one of the subsequent three. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't mind a, a rematch at some point if we get the opportunity. Nikolai, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, we have uh, an event in a couple of weeks. I think we're going to do at least one episode uh, before then. Maybe we will discuss one of the very close bouts of this year. Maybe we'll get into... That one, Max... We, uh, Ma- was, wait, was Max Alexander this year? I, I, I'm confident I think that so. it was, but I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, that was this year. Uh, if it was, maybe that'll be the fight that we rewatch uh, and kind yeah, of uh, that, judge I mean, and Mun- score. Munoz Edgar is, is super contentious. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I, I could see I could see either of those uh, making the cut. Uh, Nikolai, another good one in the books. Looking forward to connecting with you soon, buddy. Have a happy new year. A happy new year to all the listeners. Yeah, we got to figure out our new our rules. You know, oh, we yeah, that's right. You know, to get our rules together for how we're going to play it in that in the first card of the year, where it's the first card where Connor where Connor McGregor is taking on uh, Dustin Poirier, right? I think that's the second card. That's the big pay per view. The first one is uh, was supposed to be man evented by Leon Edwards and Shemaya. Oh, and, okay. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that ends up shaking out. I wouldn't be surprised if. They oh, that's move the up one the they were going to put on ABC. They were going to. Oh, is that it? I think you're right. Yes. We will see. But happy New Year to you. A great year. A great year of MMA, and so much to look forward to in uh, in 2021. And now, you know, with some of the guys going to Bellator and PFL, now we may. You know, as the level of competition maybe gets a little bit better, we might have to start. Not that we've got time to spare, but we may need to start giving some of those cards uh, our attention. I, I agree. A little bit of attention going their way, I think, is the least we can do. Uh, have a have a great night, buddy, and I look forward to connecting soon. Take care, Stanislav. <laughs>